Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. I'm glad you're with us. Got a couple things coming up for you that I want to bring to your attention. One is we've got Neil McIver, portfolio manager, talking about the difficulty in this environment, whether we're talking about the impact of taxes, inflation, but also this push toward ESG. I mean, again, all of these things make it more difficult for you. We'll talk about what to do with it also with Peter Grandich, uh, old friend back with us here. Now, Peter was the guy, by the way, who recommended uranium. Gosh, we're going back two and a half years. Nice call. I'm going to ask him what his update is on uranium plus copper plus gold, silver. And what I'm going to ask him to start off by asking this because I'm wondering, he's been in the markets a long time. So I want to know what's the biggest thing that worries him today? All of that coming your way along with Victor, along with Aussie. I've got Mike Levy's back with us uh, talking about that big debate is who's to blame for this inflation and interest rate rises, government or the central bank? We'll get into that. But first, one of my favorite all-time emails came from a person who stated, I don't know why, but Michael Campbell makes me so angry. Well, at the time I said, I think I know why. People don't like their preferred narrative challenged, especially with facts and research. I mean, many people wrap up their identity with their political views and motion comes out when those views are challenged because in effect, their identity is being challenged. And that's what turns an I don't agree with you to I hate you. But now I think it goes deeper than that. It comes down to how we process the world and make decisions. Well, for me, for example, I don't think it's tough to tell that I'm big on facts and research, driving evidence-based decision-making. I mean, I'm all about cost-benefit analysis of specific policies and the research and facts to support them. Heck, I think I'm about cost-benefit analysis when I figure out how to drive somewhere or when I go to the grocery store. Yeah, so that's my approach. But I'm clearly in the minority, which obviously puts me at odds with government, who, for example, as the parliamentary budget officer stated, didn't do any cost-benefit analysis up to about $60 billion spent on climate-related projects since 2015. On the other hand, there are people who don't mind because there are people who tend to process the world through their emotions. How they feel plays a huge part in how they react to government policies. The point is, that's a very dangerous approach when it comes to finance and economics. I hope most people can appreciate, let's say we're talking your investments, well, emotionally driven decision-making is a really good way to lose a lot of money. And most of us have to learn that lesson. The question is, how many times? See, what's noteworthy is that the top issues of the day are dominated, though, by emotion. Climate change, response to COVID, gender-related issues. Very tough to have, you know, sort of a reason or fact-based discussion. Emotion overrooms it. And we're going to add to that list, by the way, rental and a housing crisis. Yeah, and emotion, by the way, my point, not the foundation for finding effective solutions. So let me reiterate here. On Money Talks, my goal is not to change your political view. I couldn't care less about it. But I do care that we understand the full consequences of the economic and financial policies we choose, starting with the understanding that to make decisions without any cost-benefit analysis, well, I think that's an invitation to unintended consequences, including losing tens of billions of dollars. The point I want you to take away, though, is that we're in a period where we can't afford it. The unintended consequences of decision-making are devastating and growing. I mean, massive federal spending, as I said, fueled by debt, along with the loosest monetary policy in history at a time of supply shortages. Well, come on, that guaranteed inflation. And now the Bank of Canada is forced to raise interest rates in order to protect the soundness of the dollar. High food prices, 
as part of the continued increase in the cost of living, all part of decision-making. Sky-high rents, lack of affordable housing. How about dangerous medical wait times? And energy prices are the unintended but direct consequences of government policy. And they are already crushing millions of Canadians. I hope you're not one of them. But you have to appreciate that we're talking about half the population. Well, especially though, low-income earners and young adults. We're going to see bankruptcies rising. Some people will actually lose their homes over the next three years. I think our standard of living is going to continue to stagnate. And whether you recognize it or not, no matter how we feel, these are the consequences of government policy. As J.P. Morgan famously warned, you can ignore economics and finance. Trouble is, they don't ignore you. Now, I appreciate that for many people. There's no sign that even that this registers with them. But they're already feeling the impact of the consequences of bad decisions that disregards facts or research and critical appraisal in favor of partisanship and ideology fueled by emotion. I'm worried about where this leads. We are not done yet. The hard lesson is that we're in a period where math and physics are going to overwhelm political rhetoric and emotion. For example, what seems to be very difficult for political partisans of any stripe to appreciate is that bondholders, mortgage lenders, credit card issuers don't care about your politics. They don't want to know who you voted for or how you feel. They want their interest payments and principal paid back. While governments focus on other issues that appeal to emotion of millions of voters, I can tell you, government and individual debt, bond market losses, along with pension fund unfunded liabilities, well, they're going to be the dominant issues that impact you. In the meantime, let me finish by saying this. My goal was never to be liked. It was not to change someone's political view. It's to outline the consequences of the choices we make. It's to give you a map of what's coming, which, by the way, is why I'm proud that on Money Talks, as an example, how many warnings did I give about you must lock in your interest rates by the fall of 2020? We had featured it at the World Outlook Conference in February 2020. We called it a 5,000-year low in interest rates with a huge probability that all the surprises would be on the upside. Well, that's certainly what's been the case. And I appreciate when several listeners and attendees to the World Outlook Conference have told me it's been a lifesaver. Well, my point, though, today is that there is so much more to come that is going to impact you directly financially, where emotion-driven analysis and decision-making is not going to serve you. Hey, by the way, let me just remind you to go to mikesmoneytalks.ca and sign up for the free newsletter. As I say, that's the right word. It's free. We can't get a chance to update you. Uh, I'm calling it three quotes and you're out, as you can tell on this show. I love quotes. We're going to start putting even more into it, get great response from it. But take advantage of it and take advantage of what we do on Mike's Money Talks, uh, Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook, as well as Money Talks tweets. That's where you get we get kept up to date, informed with a ton of stuff you're not hearing elsewhere. So I hope you do it. Go and sign up for the free e-newsletter. I've been looking forward to this, a chance to talk with Peter Grandich again. Now, he's the author of the book, Confessions of a Wall Street Whiz Kid. Why? Because Wall Street called him a whiz kid. But it's a great book, wonderful background for anyone approaching the investment markets. Peter shares the lessons he's learned uh, over a lifetime of investing. And I'm glad he joins me now. Peter, nice to see you. Nice to have you with us. Well, Mike, as one of the three best financial journalists I've ever had the pleasure to speak to, the pleasure is truly all mine. 
Well, it's very kind. Let me just start with this, you know, Barbara Walters' big question. What, you know, you follow every aspect of the markets, so you know, the environment that we're working in. What, what jumps out when I say what concerns you most these days? I think still the, complex, the complacency here in the U.S. at least, it's probably somewhat considerable same in Canada, of how we've allowed both a debt and retirement crisis to get completely out of hand. We passed that fail-safe, if you remember the old movie, The Point of No Return, and there's still a laxative, almost careless feeling uh, that it's not going to somehow impact us or our family, which is nothing further from the truth. And just that we just had a two months or three months ago, this whole talk about the budget again and, and raising the deficit spending. And within weeks, we've raised it almost another trillion dollars. Mike, you were around as long as I have. I never imagined in my 40th year, we use a T to describe anything, let alone debt. And now we include them in dozens in terms of our debt. The CBO calling for $50 trillion in hard debt in less than 10 years here in the U.S. It's unfantable and it's unmanageable. Yeah, and as you say, we've seen this around the world, certainly in Canada too. Uh, but the un unfunded pension liabilities is something that never or rarely makes the radar. And let me just add one more thing is because you could also have it at the state, municipal you know, and of course, we're talking federally here for a second. But, uh, you know, if I, my joke about Illinois is why, did, why don't they just tell us now they're not paying their pensions? You know, I mean, it, it's a very difficult situation, especially when you're a subnational because you can't just print up the money. I think that's my suspect. That's what they'll do at the federal level. But and, at the and state my, and municipal, you can't just print it up. And, Mike, the thing that intertwines into both of them with two thirds of Americans working paycheck to paycheck, they can neither save for retirement or contribute to any paying down of that debt. They're barely staying afloat themselves. It's just a, and, and like you said, it's, it's, it's an enormous issue which gets almost no attention. And realistically, the moment it does, you, you're called a conspiracy or, you know, a hate monger or whatever names they're tying to these days. But it truly is a situation of all situations that has never been faced anything like that from an economic, social, and political standpoint. Well, we had a survey, MNP survey, and an Ipsos uh, survey this past week, basically saying, look, half of Canadians are scared to death right now about their debt load, about their cost of living. But here's a little sidelight of that. Obviously, they're not saving for retirement if that's the case, you know, right now. And I mean, that's the other, you know, thing of inflation. Yeah, I pay more at the grocery store, a lot more, and many other places, but I'm not having money left over to put away for my own retirement. Michael, the biggest fear among seniors in the United States now is not dying. It's running out of money. Mm. That shows up more percentage in a poll than passing away. And that, that is when two-fifths of boomers have nothing saved. It, it is just, a, it, it, it's mind-boggling that Wall Street will have folks come on and talk about all these wonder years are back and happy days are here and and yet all these things under the surface are just just ready to explode, unfortunately, negatively, and they will impact almost everybody. There will be a certain group at the top, way at the top of the pyramid, that it won't, but everybody else will be impacted. What I've been amazed at, though, is how ignored that bottom, say, 25% up to into, into 50% have been ignored in discussions. You know, uh, what are they doing right now in the states? Bidenomics. And I'm not trying to nail him for the problems, 
you know, he's part of that problem. But I'm just saying as if there's nothing wrong and we're doing the same thing in Canada, just, so you know, a lot of happy talk uh, about the Canadian economy. And it's just, my goodness, you've completely ignored these people who are really struggling, like severely struggling. And this is before, you know, the mortgage problem really hits someone out of in Canada. It's a five-year mortgage. I know they're longer, you know, in the States, but five-year mortgage. So we got people who've got a year left, two years, three years left. Then they're going to get hit by the mortgage payments, the increase. 40% of Americans, the lowest 40% earners, now have less cash than they did before the pandemic started. Yeah. So I, I, if this is bionomics or whatever you want to call it, yeah. please stop it. Please stop it now. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me come back to the investor now. Um, that's the environment that we're facing. What do we do about it? Let, let me throw one more at you, you know, and that is the diminished purchasing power of our currencies. The uh, U.S. is better than Canada, but, you know, everybody appreciates that. We call it inflation, but I think it's more diminished purchasing power if you look over time. But, okay, so what do we do? What do individuals do? It's not an easy environment here. Well, they don't want to do what I still in my planning group advise them to do, and that is less is more. We, we, we've gotten used to believing more money equals more happiness, more things equal better lifestyle when nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, we, we, we took away one of the reasons we have this retirement crisis is it's not just for people who are just getting by, but people who are, that were making very decent money took away from their future to enjoy a life, a better lifestyle at the moment. And because of that, now they face, they recognize this issue they have. And the other big issue that doesn't get counted in that is not only that we're living longer, but because we're living longer, and you and I can attest to this, you just can't do some of the things at 67 and 77 that you did at 37 and 47. And the medical costs in order to sustain your life basically is higher than it is at a younger age. So all the, all the things that can go wrong, have gone wrong on an economic, social, and political level. And, and there's this, I call it the don't worry, be happy crowd that just basically controls Wall Street and most of the mainstream financial networks. They don't want to discuss these things. And, and I can understand why. I think if people ever had a really serious look and was explained to how bad they were, they'd be a lot more upset than they currently are. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the ignorance is keeping them in power. And there's so many subjects I talk about on a weekly basis on, on that regard. Let me come to a few things, though. And OK, so let's talk. I want to talk because you've got a long experience with precious metals, a long experience with gold. Um, you know, you've talked about it as just a store of value, like put it in a shoebox and, you know, come back later. What do you feel about it now? Well, you're right. I've always said uh it's an investment that in many cases you hope doesn't go up. And people say, well, why do you want me to buy something like that? I say, because chances are what you own a lot of went down if gold went up a lot. And so it was always a good insurance policy, but there's also opportunity for capital appreciation in it. I think the bigger news, uh, perhaps the biggest news since you and I last had a chance to talk, I, I think it's going to be a multi-decade biggest story ever could even rival when it's all said and done the industrial revolution and that is the formation of BRICS or and or other organizations of countries forming to trade and do other things either eliminating the u.s out of it or limiting the united states involvement in it 
something that the United States is not prepared for in any way, shape, or form. People are not taking it serious. Uh, it, it is very serious. And how we knew how serious it was when the Saudis came out of left field, not really because after Biden's visit, they were very disturbed about us and basically announced that not only were they keen and interested in joining the BRICS and working closer with China, but they also went and made peace with one of their worst mortal enemies, uh, which is the United States, one of its biggest enemies, Iran. So there's a lot coming out of this BRIC thing. It's only developing now. It may not happen all at once, and it may not be all encumbrancing as one may think at the moment, but it's going to rival and impact the United States and to a lesser extent, its major trading partners like Canada and Mexico. Uh, and it's, it, it doesn't have net positives. There's no way that you look at it that it's positive for the United States. Well, and again, it's one of those I was talking earlier in the show about unintended consequences. And now, you know, when they froze Russian bank accounts, said you're going to be frozen out of the SWIFT system. Uh, you know, to me, that was just a, an, an invitation uh, to look for alternatives. And it was, which I think this is part of that process. I mean, there's other factors obviously involved, as you say, the political considerations. But I just think that was a, a, an example. We had the truckers convoy up here. And I think it was completely overlooked the significance of the government freezing bank accounts or telling banks to freeze accounts, you know, and freeze the GoFundMe pages. I mean, it's that kind of thing that invites uh, people or countries in this case looking for alternatives, people looking for alternatives to save, you know, to protect themselves out of the banking system. But yeah, I, I just think this, yeah, I think we're in a process right now. I mean, it's a huge issue and a huge, uh, you know, complicated in terms of uh, extent. Uh, but yeah, I think we're in, we're in a very interesting monetary process. And Michael, the reasons for them to want to introduce digital currencies is for more control. Yeah. And more oversight and influencing what we can or can't do. And if they tell you anything else, that's malarkey. That's Let me just give them, uh, give them a quick example that a lot of times I'll talk about some of these things and people say, I think they just don't think it's possible. And I'm going, did you ever hear of this thing called the euro? There used to be Deutschmarks. There used to be French francs, Italian lira. And presto, there weren't any. And it was called the euro. But here's the key. People did never got a chance to vote on it. That was not something that they was an election platform. It just all of a sudden was there. So I'm just saying, when you talk about monetary systems, it can change very quickly. And don't think that you're going to have a say in it. And I think digital is in that category. I agree with you fully. Yeah. Let, let's talk about a couple of other things. Um, but one of the things I give you credit for, because you were at the World Outlook Conference with us. We're going back now, you know, two and a half years. And you were one of the first people to ring the bell on uranium and saying, look, I, the nuclear renaissance is here. You know, I know it's going to have bumps and bruises, but it's here and we don't have the uranium. Ergo, on a long term basis, you like uranium. I, I just want an update from you. Yeah, nothing's really changed, Mike. The, the, the good news is, is that market uh, has made a 180. Uh, I like to still joke that 10 or 15 years ago, if you went to the United States Center and mentioned a nuclear plant, you say, not in my backyard. Now the first thing he says is, please build one yeah. as fast as you can. Uh, there's no question about it that if the world is moving towards more electrification, it clearly wants to have more electrification. Uh, the wind and solar is just not going to cut it. And uh, nuclear is 
going to be one of the big major players in that. And the perception of it has changed 180 degrees. That's all that needed to have happen. Uh, the supply and demand scenarios, a phenomenal supply and demand scenario in terms of so much more demand than known supply. And where known supply is, not the best places in the world that are the best, best friends to the United States, not taking away what Canada can provide. And thankfully, we're still good friends. I think the people are, at least. So the argument has only gotten better. It's probably not even the third inning yet of a nine-inning game. Uh, yeah, it has swings. The one negative, if you want to call it that, is unlike any other metal we could pick, where there could be hundreds, if not thousands, of companies looking, developing it and all, that's not the case when it comes to uranium. There's a handful of known producers, certainly even less of those, few of those that are actually public that you can buy as a stock. And then the rest are all speculations. Companies that are hoping to find it may have found something and trying to develop it and all, but it's a difficult market to get wide representation in. That's why I said, and I, I still say it, so goes Cameco, so goes the uranium market. It'd be, I, I was hard-pressed when it was under 10 to say, if you believe in uranium, how do, you, how, does, how do they not partake in such a move? I think they've only fortified their positions better to be more advantageous to it. And uh, I, I just think that market is going to go. And I, the two safest way to play it is, is to play the few companies that are out there now that buy physical uranium or a Cameco. The rest is speculation. I mean, there's good speculations, but be careful of this. I lost enough money in junior markets in a variety of ways to know this after 40 years. There's a saying that goes, oh, it will rise all boats. Not necessarily. Uranium can go up a lot. Doesn't mean every single uranium stock is going to go up with it. People are more selective now. It's, 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 it's more challenging to be a junior resource company. That's a topic if you ever want to get into, but don't fall that just simply because it has uranium name in it or they're looking for it, that it's just going to go up a lot when uranium keeps moving higher. Let me finish with a couple of things here. One is uh, just a quick take, and I know it's manipulated, obviously, but the, the bond market, the interest rates, I meant the interest rate related central bank decisions. And, you know, for a portfolio today, uh, are you comfortable with short term, long term? None, none at all. I, 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 I myself put a large sum of money at when one year paper hit 5%, you know, the best the stock market, I think will be a high single digit return if possible. And so with all the things that were happening and, and also because I, I have large exposure to metals, I, I just thought 5% sure thing was a better bet than speculating on whether or not this stock market rally can continue. I'm hoping the market rally continues only for one reason, Mike, People found out a year ago they had far too much exposure to equity. And how you know that is when you can't mentally sleep because of your portfolio, your portfolio is wrong. I don't care what people are predicting. You're supposed to be able to sleep at night with what you own. So I've been hoping that rallies like this and people that saw themselves overly exposed don't try to get reinvested in it, but shake out things and become more conservative in it. Now, you, you were the one who just mentioned metals. Let's talk a little bit about that to finish off. And that is, uh, you know, uh, first of all, are we talking copper? Are we talking, you know, gold, silver, that kind of thing, or other metals? Uh, obviously, in a down period after a big run, uh, what are you looking for there? Well, 
the junior market is the most cheapest it's been relative to metal prices. I said up until a week or two ago, and we finally started to see a rise, that this is the biggest spread between the valuations we were given to juniors and what metals could be sold for if they found it at this particular mm -hmm. price. I said either one or two things. It's either the greatest buying opportunity in my 40 years or somebody rung a bell and I didn't hear it and they closed the door and I'm on the wrong side of the door. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping it's the former. I think in recent days it's starting to look more and more that it's the former. And there, gold, silver, and copper. You know, for the first time that... I've had some people that followed me for a long time said, I'm even surprised to hear that from you, Peter. I rank silver now equally with gold, which was always a second choice in my book. And the reason is it's, it's physical argument and its industrial need has made it far more important than it once was. So uh, it would not surprise me that silver performs as well or even outperforms gold. Copper is a much better story, even longer term. Short term, you may have to give up a little because it's still on this thought of it's just a recession play. But the physical demand for copper, if you're going to buy the electrification story, you have to buy the copper story. One can't go without the other. Great stuff as always, Peter. Look, it's nice wonderful to get a chance to chat with you again. And I am going to put you on the spot and say we're going to do it again in the near future. Oh, I hope so, Michael. And, and please let me finish by saying this. And, and whoever's in charge, don't cut this part out. People need to know what a class man you are. From the first day I met you to now, you have your most interests in your audience. It's never self-serving. There's never any ego. So when I heard that you wanted to talk to me again, believe me, you're the first person I would run back to speak to and all the people I've ever met in 40 years in this business. Well, that's very kind. And I want to direct people to petergrandich.com, petergrandich.com, because you can go at Peter Grandich for Twitter, and follow. You can go there and go to his blog. So all of that's available there at, or, or sorry, petergrandich.com. We'll put the details on the website too. Peter, thank you. Thank you and God bless. And say hello, please, to Grant and Nina for me. You know, what's interesting about how the federal government operates is no government has ever spent more money on polling. And I can always get a sense of what the polling results are by what's getting tweeted on a regular basis by, you know, members of the government or, or supporters, et cetera. In this case, obviously, the economy's front and center, as it is in the States with the big Bidenomics tour, you know, there. Unfortunately, not all of it uh, is, let's say, a full explanation of what's going on in the economy. And uh, I want to bring Michael Levy back in. Mike, welcome back, first of all. Nice to have you. And well, thanks, Mike. Uh Bidenomics, that's an interesting word, Mike. Well, it sure is. And, and there are a lot of aspects to the economy, for sure. But uh, to only, you know, sort of, well, especially not only to just sort of be selective, but be incorrect in your selections, is what blew me away. <laughs> While you're away, they were talking about, oh, the wonderful growth in GDP, because we've brought in over a million uh, newcomers in the last year. And I'm going, well, what else would you expect? That's why economists don't look at GDP. They look at GDP per capita as an example. <laughs> but even then they go to heck with that. Let's look at productivity. You know, let's look at capital investment per worker, all of those kind of things. So the debates on, and you can appreciate this week, the debates back again to interest rates. You know, on Wednesday, of course, we got the bump up in rates. Now the finger pointing starts. Is it the federal government's fault? Is it the Bank of Canada's fault? All we know is we don't like higher interest rates. Well, Mike, you know, who does to start with? <laughs> yes. Uh, secondly, is it the Bank of Canada's fault? They have misread inflation 
from the get-go. We've been talking about it. They've been, they, they have just absolutely misread it. And now they are trying to pay, play almost catch-up, but you can't play catch-up when you've already caught up and exceeded what is tolerable. And on the government side, um, Oh, Mike, my gosh, what's going on there is, I mean, it's fiscal policy, monetary policy, and the government is just way overspending, and it's just, it's inflationary. The money they've given away is inflationary. So, I mean, it's a real knocking of heads. Yeah, I, I agree. But, you know, it's sort of interesting or noteworthy. I should have said that word, noteworthy, is they're working at cross purposes, because clearly bringing in that many people is inflationary because, of course, it increases the demands. You know, there, as a, one example, uh, you know, I'm going to talk to Ozzy later about this. I mean, the uh, impact on housing of increasing the population like that, that pushes prices up or pushes rents up, whichever the case may be. But at the same time, uh, you know, you've got, of course, interest rates rising, which is trying to do the opposite, trying to discourage demand, trying to slow down the rate of inflation. But I may not have expressed that very clearly, but they are literally working at cross purposes and have been doing that for ages. Absolutely. And, and what we've got is um, uh, with, with the government, uh, if they tighten fiscal policy, taking some pressure off interest rates, that would be good. But they're not tightening fiscal policy. They're spending, spending, and then more spending. And that then puts the ball in the court of the Bank of Canada because they are looking at the results of all this spending and saying, hey, we've got to raise interest rates in order to calm things down. So they're butting heads. And the fact is, Mike, maybe it's time here again, once again, to stop and take a breath. Well, one of the things that just comes to mind immediately is $31 billion in subsidies for Volkswagen and Stellantis. You know, that's going to put more pressure on the employment market. We have low unemployment, put more pressure on wages just in that direction. Uh, I mean, there's so many examples. I know I could just keep going on. But I think the point is, has to be noted that they're working at cross purposes. Now, the other thing I know, Mike, you've expressed before is you supported the, the interest rate increase, but you yep. wanted them to take a pause because – you didn't feel it had filtered through the rest of the economy. I mean, it takes time. And we've been talking about mortgages while you've been away. You know, like if you took out your mortgage in 220 and you've got a five-year, you haven't renegotiated. So the impact of high rates on your mortgage hasn't been felt yet. And I think that's a big story coming up. But there's an example. When you raise rates, it doesn't necessarily get through the economy all at the same time. It doesn't, and that's what the Bank of Canada, I'm saying sorely, is looking at. They're concentrating on right now. We've raised, we've raised, we've raised, we've raised, but nothing's happening. We'll have to continue raising, raising, raising. And, you know, Craig Alexander, who was um, the uh, uh, chief economist with TD Bank, along with other notable things that he's done through his career as an economic, says it takes 18 to 24 months for the full impact of interest rates to be realized. And now interest rates are above the rate of inflation, which means real interest rates will be a bigger drag on the economy going forward. So all he's saying is take a breath, not, not don't raise interest rates again, but let's see what you've done. Let's, let's see the impact. Let's see the results. I mean, you just don't do something and expect that the next day things are going to change. By the way, they aren't. They're probably changing in a small way, inflation is coming down. It's coming down in the U.S. and Canada, but not seeing the impact that the central banks want to see. And I think a breath here 
and let that just sink in and give everybody a chance to just sit back and say, okay, and by the way, I'm still paying twelve ninety five a pound for blueberries, so inflation hasn't come down that much. Well, there's a couple of things there. One, I'm just going to throw you a little tidbit, Mike. The Bank of Canada paid out $27 million in raises and bonuses last year, but it bungled its forecast. Sorry, I'm not going further with that. I just thought you should know that if you want indigestion, but I'm not sure what the bonuses were for then because they've admitted, by the way, they got the forecast wrong. I think that's part and parcel of the fact that the economy is just so complex, as we've chronicled all the way along. You can get a recession in housing at one moment, but not in manufacturing or whatever. It, it, the impact, again, of rates aren't uniform. So uh, I think it's difficult, but they did get the forecast wrong, and the federal government didn't care. So I'm going to light a fuse under you now. All the money that they did give out to people who had no right to be claiming it, no right to be getting it, but some of the larger amounts, the government's turning their back on and not not the government, but CRA turning their back on, but they're going after the smaller people, Mike. I mean smaller, not smaller in size. The smaller people who needed the government handouts and whether it was a thousand dollars or five or ten thousand and they're going after them spending their manpower woman power going after these people and actually taking them holding them to account making them appeal making them get a lawyer i mean what the hell is cra doing because all they're doing now is making headlines but they're not being effective with getting back some of the money that they gave away that they never should have. Well, they could start with their own department. I mean, keep in mind, there's 600 investigations underway, uh, you know, and some people have been fired already, and I appreciate that. But, uh, you know, they're still investigating as many as 600 that people made false from the CRA, I'm saying within the organization, made claims of, uh, to unemployment insurance or, or sir, rather, that they were unemployed when they're writing a job. I don't think that was just a mistake. I think you understand that you're actually working and you're applying for a benefit, <laughs> you're applying for a benefit for people who lost their job. But I mean, so, I mean, this whole thing, right, it's just such a mismatch at this point. But in the meantime, come on, We've got people who are really struggling, and we have been talking and chronicling that all the way along. And if you figure out all of the stuff they've done for the pandemic, benefited upper income. You know, they sent Absolutely. checks to people who did not lose financial wherewithal during the pandemic. They suffered other ways like everyone, but they didn't lose that. That when you re put record low interest rates, hey, that only works if you've got assets. And a heck of a lot of millions of Canadians don't have stocks. Millions of Canadians don't have housing, you know, own a house. They didn't benefit. And continually, we overlook this huge section. Is it half the population? I'm not sure. But there's a huge section of Canadians who didn't benefit from those policies. You know, and as I say, I just think when they want to find blame for political partisanship reasons, man, everybody's got to look in the mirror. Absolutely. And Mike, just one last thing. And this is from Bank of International Settlements again. And they were talking about, and we have talked about the chances of a financial crisis. And they say, once again, they're, they are significant given that interest rates are high and still rising. But they added, and I think this is so important, it comes right back full circle to your point, that these risks could be reduced if government tightened policy, fiscal policies, taking some pressure off interest rates as the primary policy tool and strengthening the country's public finances. Let me put those in uh, that in two words. Stop spending.
<laughs> there you go. And those are the debates that we're having in the country today. I, I hope people are more informed about them. I listen to some of the commentary and I shake my head, but we're all paying a price there, paying the price directly. Like when you mentioned food and raising interest rates isn't going to impact food. We already had Competition Bureau, et cetera, looking into that. That's another subject. I'm going to get Sylvain Charlebois on with me next week. And we're going to talk about some of the grocery prices. In the meantime, Mike, you got to take a break now. Take a rest. Glad you're back. Thanks, Mike. Time now for the quote of the week. Uh, if you're not familiar, Barbara W. Tuckman is an acclaimed American historian and author. She won the Pulitzer Prize twice. Remember the Guns of August and a best-selling history of the Prelude to and the first month of the World War I, but also Stillwell and the American experience in China. This quote distills wonderfully her experience of political leaders and decision-making, which is illuminated by such nonsensical decisions like ignoring the need for backup power for wind and solar because it's intermittent, and things like failing to acknowledge the need for minerals like lithium, cobalt, rare earths when it comes to the renewable transition with the fact that the majority is controlled by China. Here's the quote. Wooden-headedness, the source of self-deception, is a factor that plays a remarkably large role in government. It consists in assessing a situation in terms of preconceived, fixed notions, while ignoring or rejecting any contrary signs. It's acting according to wish, while not allowing oneself to be deflected by the facts. My goodness, I just have to say amen to that. You look at wooden headedness, the source of self-deception, a big factor in government. But assessing a situation in terms of preconceived fixed notions while ignoring or rejecting any contrary signs, it's acting according to wish while not allowing oneself to be deflected by the facts. I have been astounded at that when we look at climate policy, especially in light of what happened in Europe, what happened in developing nations over the past year, the threats that it can continue there, the shortages, etc., been astounded how little that it seems to have changed people's perception of the issue. As I said, she gave me fair warning. I want to get into the specifics of the market these days, and I'm going to do it with Neil McIver, McIver Capital Management at CG. Neil, you've been in the business a while. I, I don't want to say how long, by the way. I don't want to start off on the wrong foot. No, but you've, you've got the experience. You've had a great track record at McIver Capital Management uh, on all sorts of portfolios. You do a number of portfolios from, you know, sort of growth into let's be very conservative, that kind of thing. Just give me the quick uh, on what the investment environment is for you as a portfolio manager. Uh, well, you know, it's a difficult environment. I mean, 2022 was um, uh, was disastrous in the markets overall. We did very well. We we run very sophisticated model portfolios that that mitigate risk. So, you know, in a year when the S and P 500, I think, was down about 16, 18 percent, and and you had global markets down about 17 percent, bonds off 20 percent, we were only off about four to seven percent. There's been a recovery. Through the recovery, though, it's been very, very, very narrow. Overall, since January 1, I think um, uh, if you remove um, 
uh, Facebook, Amazon, Google from the overall equation. The overall market's moved up maybe 1% or 2%. All of the rest of the growth is really focused on about two to four stocks. Uh, and that's really what's driven the market. So it's been a very narrow recovery. And then the question is, of course, is, is on a go-forward basis, what's the catalyst for, for further growth in the equity markets? And it's not necessarily clear. So it's a challenging environment as long as you protect on the downside, as we did last year, uh, and we get most of the growth on the, on the upside. Um, I think we're going to be fine for this year, but it is definitely a challenging environment, particularly when we don't see a catalyst um, for, uh, uh, for exponential growth or for significant growth anyhow. Well, it's certainly tough when it's so manipulated in through the interest rate markets. I mean, when everybody's just watching what the central bank will do. And no, I'd be fair. They have been very clear what they were going to do, raise rates until they were satisfied. Inflation was under control. Market didn't believe them on occasion, you know, yes. at that point. But still, uh, it's so manipulated. It's, it's no longer do I look specifically at the earnings of a company only. I got to see what the interest rate environment's going to do or what the central bank next decision is going to be. So I was, I just think that's a little more difficult too. It adds on a level of uncertainty that, yeah, we've always had central bank action, but I don't think anything close to this degree. Well, if I could come back, I'm gonna. I would come back as a central banker. They seem to be able to control everything in the Western world, <laughs> and and to a greater degree today than 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 ever before. And absolutely, it's it, these are decisions made in back rooms by a group of people that don't talk to us necessarily. And when they do, it's in a very couched manner. So, um, try to figure out which direction they're going to go is 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 mostly a game. But the bottom line is is that. They didn't really get it right at the very beginning of this inflationary period, and I don't necessarily trust them on a go-forward basis to be able to control inflation the way that they're, they're, uh, uh, they've tried to. Uh, and, and, you know, you take a look at where interest rates are today. I mean, we've got, you know, they're moving the rates, well, they've moved the rates up in Canada 5%. Um, but if you take a look at, you know, what people are actually paying to borrow money, you're, you're looking at 7 8%, so, so much, much higher numbers, and all of that, um, is really a distortion in an economy and to a great extent a mistake. You know, you have to remember that central banks, their their only focus, their only they only have two focuses. One is to keep interest rates low around about two percent, and the other to keep full full uh, employment. And that's not at all what's happened. They've allowed inflation to explode upwards, and that's very damaging. It's a wrecking ball moving through the economy. And the longer that rates stay where they are today, uh, the more damage is done. And it just it, it's uh, and and the marginal damage and the and the exponential damage just increases literally minute by minute. And and, uh, and certainly week by week. Yeah, I was chatting with Michael Levy about that. It's, it's just, you know, there's both sides of that equation. The other is government, who seems to be working at cross purposes. I mean, while they're trying to bump up interest rates to reduce demand, discourage consumption, you know, maybe bringing some price pressures down. At the same time, the government still takes actions that, you know, whether it's the massive growth in population, which the ban central bank mentioned, you know, in the statement this past week, you know, and many other things. But, you know, so that's just part of the environment that's so difficult. And I'm going to throw two others at you here that I think, uh, and I'll start with just the general taxation situation, you know, that people do feel that they're heavily taxed. Obviously, the carbon tax put a lot of focus back on that. But outside of British Columbia, because they already had the Clean Fuels Act, the new Clean Fuels Act across the country came in. 
it, right, yeah, sure, it's maybe four cents in some provinces right now, but it's estimated again, like the carbon tax, to go up into 2030. And I just think, you know, property tax increase, all three levels of government, uh, please, uh, I'm not locking, knocking just one, all three levels of government jump in there. You know, some people live in property tax areas that saw, you know, seven, eight, nine percent increase. They just feel, man, they got nothing left over to invest. Well, that's right. I mean, you know, what pays for schools, roads, hospitals, energy infrastructure, critical research facilities? Well, well taxes do, of course. And um, as, you know, and, and as, as the government moves forward and begins to restrict energy exploration and energy production, that knocks out a huge chunk of the revenue that the central government, that, that the federal government receives, as well as provincial governments receive. So that gaping hole has to be filled somehow. And this is a zero-sum game, you know. If there's a shortfall someplace else, um, when you crush an energy, uh, <clears throat> when you crush the energy sector, it has to come from somewhere else. And this is why you're seeing an increase, an increased pressure on income taxes, on consumption taxes, on transportation taxes, on uh, on carbon taxes, on on even property taxes, because there's just less money in the system. Period. End. Uh, and that's all coming at a time when the world is much less affordable than it was uh, just even a year ago mm -hmm. uh, for, for the average Canadian. I was reading a report by uh, MIP and uh, they were, you know, they say in the report that Canadians concern about debt, ability to pay bills has reached an all time high. Uh, more than half of them yes. regret the debt they've taken on in, um, in life. So that's up about, you know, about. 10% from where it was uh, last year. Half are concerned about the current le levels of debt. Uh, something like uh, uh, more than 50% are about $200 away from not being able to meet their financial obligations. And the, the proportion of, of people who believe that they're close to being insolvent has increased dramatically from about 25% to about 35% just in the last six months alone. So as, pro as all of these taxes are increasing, then we also have these inflationary pressures and we're getting individuals are getting crushed in the middle. I mean, there's no question. If you look at the marginal tax rates in British Columbia, we're at 53.5. Ontario's at 53.55, I think. Alberta's much lower at around about 48%. Um, Nanavut, I think we should all move there just for the tax uh, environment. It's, they're at 44.5. So they're at, they're at the lowest. Um, but all the studies show that as soon as taxes go above 50%, people no longer believe in the system. They, they don't believe in the fairness um, of the taxation. And that's just income taxes. That doesn't talk about all the consumer taxes and the consumption taxes. That doesn't talk about transportation taxes and carbon taxes and, and, and property taxes. So, uh, you know, we're, we're living in a system where at, at present, um, the level of taxation is is crushing the individual to the point that you're not seeing a dynamic economy. So you're not seeing entrepreneurism. You're not seeing all of those things that we would naturally see in a in a in a vibrant uh, economy um, begin to flourish. Simply because everywhere we turn, we're getting we're getting injured by by taxes. Uh, you know, and there's, uh, I'll, I'll just mention, Alan, what you were just saying. Of course, if we go electric vehicles, we've lost all the gasoline taxes and they have had no plan or sign. Where do you come up with the billions to replace that? You know, and their goal is to have, well, I, I know it's no new internal combustion engine sold past 2035, but they want obviously them off the road. I just think, I'm just putting that out there. That's another one they've got to deal with and, and take into account. Uh, I, yep. You know, the other thing, though, that I think is also difficult is when I look at some of the numbers coming out of ESG investing and, you know, 
that companies are, are on board or making or banks making policy statements and we're not going to lend to oil and gas, whatever it is. But the numbers come back to us as saying they underperform kind of what you'd say, uh, just strictly keep the eye on the ball, which is to make money for your pension, for example. Well, you know, I've always said, you know, our main driver of success is our professional culture to simply never forget what our main purpose is as investment managers for, for our clients. It's not to save the world from global warming. It's not to push social equity, which, by the way, was the opposite of equality. It's not to push a one world view of, of corporate governments. Uh, it's instead we are unyielding advocates for the protection and growth of our clients' wealth and prosperity. And we're unapologetic in that. And we're nothing more and nothing less. That's really our sole purpose as advocates. Um, and I think a great many people in the investment industry, invest, in, investors themselves, misunderstand this and, and, and get this wrong. Um, the level of ESG nonsense being pumped out um, by, uh, uh, by various banks and by various institutions and, or, and organizations, I mean, the level is, is unbelievable. And I think that's impacting um, the, the investment decisions that people are making very, very, very significantly. And, and I think one of the best ways to, you know, to individualize that so that people understand it on an individual basis is, is look at a, um, a particular story or any particular story. And if, I'd like to share one with you that I think is, 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 is interesting for, for your listeners. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, please. So, you know, about three years ago, um, an established senior advisor in his early 40s uh, took me for lunch. I'd known him for quite a while uh, to hear my thoughts uh, on his path toward building a better and larger, larger business. And I'm always happy to help. I mentor a number of different people, so I'm always happy, happy to help. And the advisor explained to me that he was in the process of converting his practice to an all ESG shop. So the majority of his investment solutions and all of his outgoing communications would surround ESG values and dictates. And he wanted my opinion on whether or not this was going to be successful or not. Now, I'm not sure if he was happy with what my opinion was, but I was very honest with it. And I said, look, if I am your prospective client and you tell me this is all about your focus on ESG investing, then you're immediately telling me that you were no longer looking after my best interest and instead have an agenda with my capital. I'm looking for an advisor who solely is focused upon my prosperity. So based upon that, you're not getting my money. But more importantly, from a professional portfolio management perspective, which of course he should understand being a professional himself, is the resulting ESG portfolios that are that are going to be that you're going to be suggesting and moving forward with are going to be naturally inefficient and highly volatile. And this is because the ESG filters result in a very small universe of potential companies that you can buy. And each of these, each of these companies generally are going to be very similar to each other in terms of um, uh, what happens in the marketplace and how they're impacted uh, by, by the overall market. So, um, and, when this happens, you get portfolios that are positively correlated. That means they go up and down like dolphins based upon the same economic input. And this always, and we know this, we've known this forever, this always results in higher risk and lower long-term performance because these types of um, portfolios periodically get blown up. And, you know, fast forward three years, and unfortunately that individual is no longer in the industry. But worse than that, his clients, you know, had a very bad three years. Uh, and a good example of that is if you look at um, Arc Energy. Are you familiar with Arc Energy and, and Kathy Woods and uh, uh, the uh, the rise to stardom that, that she's had over the last little while? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it, she was the poster child, or she was, uh, you know, on that way up, especially in, uh, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, in, from, in 2021, uh, you know, sort of November 220, and all of a sudden things skyrocket. She was the person that, because, of course, the fund did really well for, I don't know if it's a one-year period, what it was, but spectacularly well, and then did spectacularly unwell. <laughs> that, that's, that, well, that's it. And uh, ironically, it's still going, and it's still very, very popular. But it, it, that was really the poster child for the most, uh, or an ESG-styled ETF or exchange-traded fund that she had. So, you know, in January 2021, I, I, she took in some $3 billion in new investments. And most of these, by the way, were forced or, or mandated by a lot of pension funds and a lot large large pools of capital. But, but about $3 billion in January 2021, to this day, to the market that I'm looking at right now, um, that ETF is down 70%. Yeah. From January 2021 to, to today. That means that you're, just to get back to zero with those dollars, that's going to take you 235% just to make it back to zero. And this is the problem with concentrated portfolios that are ESG focused is you end up with this high degree of volatility and you can get blown up. And remember, if you lose 50%, it takes 100% to, to get back to zero again. And this is why, you know, Warren Buffett said the first rule of managing money is, is never to lose money. And the second rule of, of managing money is always refer to rule number one. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, this is the danger of ESG investing from an individual's perspective. And, and they have to really understand that. And it's harder and harder and harder to get away from it because these things are being pushed institutionally. And um, uh, in many cases, people's advisors, um, uh, the, the client may not be aware, but the what they're what the advisor is allowed to invest in is becoming restricted and a lot more of these ESG types yes. of investments are being injected and this is the danger that I see uh, and uh, it, it, uh, it it's something that individuals really have to consider as they as they move forward uh, a couple of things just I just want to reiterate what you said there in terms of it, it really is overlooked that you know if you bought a stock at ten dollars and it drops to five you think, okay, I get that. I've lost 50%. But what gets overlooked a lot of times is you've got to make 100% then. You've got to double your five to get back to break even. And I just think, I know it's straightforward, but that's an important thing. And why, and I know as you as a professional with your group, the McIver uh, Capital Management, that's why you talk risk. And, you know, that's music to my ears because I've learned that the hard way too. I'm not pretending I didn't learn that the hard way. But just, and that's why you look at a market like this with this level of uncertainty and manipulation, and you know, there's so many variables, and it's just it just says put your risk on first. You know, make your decisions, do stuff, but just remember that you're managing risk. And and that brings me to just generally, and I know these are broad. You take individuals, what their specific situation is, risk aversion, you know, emotional makeup, all that, plus the financials. But just generally, is is this a market where you're just sort of keeping some powder dry? You know, yes. you, you, you've got a foot in the water, but you're keeping some powder dry both directions. Yeah, I mean, the structure to, you know, very sophisticated institutional caliber model portfolios is they don't go to cash. So we run effectively very similar to portfolios to how Harvard and Yale and large institutions run their money. They mm -hmm. don't go to cash. They don't try to market time, but they do change the structure to the portfolios slightly and, and on a tactical level in order to um, uh, protect capital, but also take advantage of opportunities. And that's exactly what we've done. So our models have existed for 20 years and, and begin 
beginning in January of 2022, we raised all the cash levels in the models from about three to four percent, which it's it's gone along at it for many many years, to up to twelve to fourteen percent, and we've maintained that. And we're looking to deploy that over the next six months. We think the, the bottom of the uh, the market, the low, was is, was probably behind us at some point in in, in late fall last year, um, and and we think that. There's going to be opportunities going forward. But again, there's not enough green flags in front of us. And I talked earlier about um, uh, the lack of a catalyst um, that's going to drive this market higher. So we're going to sit on cash. We're getting paid now for cash that's reasonably high. um, And and we're going to pick our spots to... uh, uh, to add positions uh, in, into this market, and I think, and, and as you say, risk management is absolutely everything. It, it uh, it's the critical piece of it's a critical key that 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 uh, determines long term performance. Well, and as you say, we're finally getting paid to have you know something more conservative. You know, whether it's a six month treasury or one year treasury, whatever you know something. But you're finally, I mean, th- that was more tough to be patient when you were getting a quarter of a percent, if you know what I mean. Not quite well, so tough right. when you're getting five or five and a quarter or something of that sort, you know. And of course, that's the competition for the market too. But it's not so tough to sit back and be patient when you're at least getting paid for a change. Hey, Neil, this has been terrific. And I want to put you on the spot. As you say, you're looking over the next six months or whatever. When uh, I want to get a chance to visit again with you real soon when these things sort of sort out and you come you know, that part of the market, uh, you want to say, okay, maybe there's an opportunity here. Absolutely. I'd love to come on and, and, and share that point. I mean, nobody rings a bell, of course, but, yeah. um, and, and we do believe there's, there, uh, we are approaching a point um, of sort of uh, maximum pessimism or mass, maximum hesitancy. And, um, and we think that that's the moment uh, to begin to move. Eventually rates will come down and that's going, that will be a catalyst. So yeah. it's, it's a matter of, uh, you know, trying to pick that point. Well, great stuff. Nice to visit with you. Thank you so much, Michael. Say hi, your, your listeners are fantastic. I love the new format and uh, uh, I, uh, it's a pleasure to be on. Hey, one of the things I want to mention with Neil, uh, he didn't say it, but I should have. His, his is the Advisory Team of the Year. Wow, that's quite an award by Wealth Management Magazine, the Advisory Team of the Year. You can hear his approach, conservative, but uh, no, risk management, I should call it that. And then, of course, when the market affords opportunities, he goes in, he's got a balanced approach, but that's a heck of an accomplishment, Advisory Team of the Year. <laughs> Time now for the shocking stat of the week. You know, as I was talking with Michael about earlier, the politicians are out of the woodwork wanting to lay blame for inflation on everything, everyone, but certainly not their actions, which is kind of absurd given all the spending government's done. Kind of reminds me of that Oprah approach, how they did it during the pandemic. You get a check and you get a check and you get a check. Obviously, there, was much, uh, there wasn't much discrimination of who actually got those checks, as literally hundreds of millions went to people who did not suffer uh, financially during the pandemic. So, yeah, it was a good vote-buying mechanism. But as Michael and I were saying, I mean, it certainly was a major contributor, not the only thing, supply chain shortages, easy money policy, all of that kind of stuff. But now we celebrate that the reduced rate of inflation is down to whether we want to get it down to 2%. You know, I mean, are you kidding? I mean, we've got uh, food prices, by the way, at 9% since last year. That beats 12%, I guess. Oh, good. The overall cost of about 700 goods and services now going up at a slower rate because it's 3.4%, the latest number. 
which is very different, by the way, than prices are actually going down. And I think people still confuse the two. But that brings me to the shocking stat of the week. Right now, the overall inflation rate tells us that prices are increasing about three to three and a half percent compared to last year. But that was on top of a 7.7% gain last June versus June 21, which was on top of a 4.2% gain over June 2020. So yeah, it's 3%, 3.4% today, 7% last June on top of 4.2% in 2020. So in other words, this is the point. What cost you $10 in June 2020 now costs you over $12. I'll put it another way. Your $10 in 2020 only buys you $8.59 worth of goods and services. And if we're talking about food, that $10 in 220 only buys you $8.19 worth today. As Milton Friedman said, inflation is taxation without legislation. So what about this? I haven't heard anybody talk about this. The bank's target of 2%. In other words, their target is to have your currency buy 2% less every year. So what would that mean over the average person's working life? Let's say you started work at 25, retired at 65. Well, in a nutshell, they're talking about every year a 2% erosion of your purchasing power. If nothing else changes, like you don't get a wage increase to match it, which means your average, let's say $1,000 a week salary. Think about this. In that working lifespan between 25 and you retire at 65, that $1,000 per week salary buys only $450 worth of goods when you retire. My point is that, you know, all this focus and fuss over a 2% inflation rate, and they talk as if that would be good news, and they will when it gets to that, come on, doesn't come close to telling you the real story, and that is what your money is becoming worth less. That's the story. I'm going to bring Ozzy Jurek in her right now. Ozzy, I got to believe you. When I listened to the Bank of Canada this week, and of course we had the interest rate bump as I was chatting with Michael about and has implications all across the board. Why? Because we've got record sovereign debt, record personal debt, you know, company debts up there. The list is a long one. But I got to start with something else he said, that Tiff Macklin, governor, sits there and says, you know, this big immigration thing or new migrants coming because some might have already been here on a student visa or whatever you know you know that million fifty thousand last year and planning for at least a half million this year hey that's having an impact on the housing market <laughs> I, I gotta say i was happy you said it but i thought where have you been yeah it, it boggles the mind it's like it's uh... It, all three levels of governments have been pointing fingers at each other, you know, and, and they're all right. They're all, everybody is to blame, but the problem is nobody seems to have an answer. We have sort of, we take a little stab of it here and there, and in the meantime, the developers are apprehensive. They don't know, they don't have any clarity in terms of what land is becoming available. Their costs are rising like unbelievable. I was at a meeting yesterday where uh, several developers were saying, look, we're just going to put some stuff on hold because we don't have clarity, you know, it's just, you know, it's just, we, we are looking, the costs are rising to such an extent that our 14% profit that we have projected is now down to three. Do you really want to continue building with that small, smaller margin before you lose money? Yeah, and it's very key to point out that 3%, you know, estimated can get eaten up instantly with more inflationary pressure, another right. government regulation. I'll tell you this, though, this is still widely misunderstood. 
the role that government plays in putting these housing costs up and restricting uh, building. And I, I'm with you. It's all three levels of government. But I still have a problem with exacerbating the problem by taking in more people than we can house. And there's stories now coming out, and I'm glad there are, good for the media, pointing out that we're bringing in people and they're ending up on the street. We didn't have housing available for them. I, I think this is, and I know I've said this before, so I apologize, but I think this is in a Hall of Fame major screw-up what we're dealing with here because housing is a fundamental, obviously. Food is a fundamental. You know, energy is a fundamental. Well, I, I just sh shiver to think what the outcome here and what the reaction will be, all the wrong ones usually because emotion's going to get involved, as I was sort of referring to in my comment, and bad things are going to happen, but the facts remain. We bring in more people than we can house. We do not have a housing program to deal with anything close to this. I agree with you. They're now acknowledging the problem, but they have no clue what to do. Not at this level, not at this size. Well, also, we could look at Europe. I mean, Germany brought in millions and millions of immigrants and Hungary. All of these countries were dealing with an unanticipated amount of people. What did they do? They blamed the landlords. Any vacant place uh, had to be renovated by the landlord and refugees put in. We had mayors saying, what do you want me to do? We have 20,000 people coming. Where am I going to put them, right? And all of a sudden, the fingers are pointed at owners, developers, and really the problem starts elsewhere. Well, it starts with government. I'll say that. It starts with government. I mean, I looked at that uh, report by Paul Sullivan, who just did on building costs, you know, just the actual construction costs, uh, you know, in that Vancouver area, and it's what, 20, 25% of the ultimate cost of your build, of your, of your purchase. And these are the same governments that talk to me about affordable housing. But th this is serious stuff here. When you're bringing in 2 million people over a three-year period, and we're already not housing them, this is so unfair to people coming in who've uprooted their lives to come in. Uh, sorry, and let me just, because I forgot to say this uh, a couple of weeks ago when you were talking about it. The impact isn't necessarily on house prices, or it depends on the income level of the people coming in. We need a demographic sort of profile, because my take is that if they don't have a ton of money when they're coming in, well, that's the rental market's going to feel that, because they're not purchasing houses, they're renting, or apartments, etc. But if they maybe did, like we had in Vancouver, that avalanche of big-time Chinese money, well, they're going to buy houses, and that's going to support price. So it's important to make that distinction when we're talking about the impact on the housing market. But, I mean, the bottom line, Ozzy, is we're not seeing building increase at all. I mean, that's the other side of this coin. We're not close to what CMHC says has to happen, but our actual numbers coming out of the last couple of months haven't painted a rosy picture if we're thinking about supplying. Well, actually, StatsCan just said last week that a downturn in building permits has accelerated. You know, the building permits... For the months, we're at one and a half billion down from 2.3 million billion a year ago. And the year-to-date numbers are even less encouraging with us. For instance, let's say the city of Chilliwack had a 43% decline, which sort of contributes to the 20% decline province-wide that we had in housing starts. So it's a broad-based and accelerating decline versus the first quarter. Well, and let me ask, I mean, you talk to a ton of people in the business, you know, and I, I just want to know, what, what are they saying? I mean, this is just anecdotal, but what are they saying? I mean, this is the math just doesn't add up, period. You know, number of people coming in, the demand we need, the amount of uh, units we need to build, et cetera, et cetera. None of it adds up. Yeah, and do you take, you take, we talked yesterday about, uh, this is just at a table, 
they talked that uh, one of the developers just gave back all of his deposits. So now we're hearing there's several developers thinking, you know, we're not going to even start construction. We, we're going to be we're in a lost position now if we just so they just pay back the, the the buyers their money, and so they're not even building what they had already planned. Other developers saying, look, we we might have planned to build X amount of units. Well, we're going to build the first 150, and then we'll see what the market is doing. Right now, there's no clarity, and I I don't blame the developers. I don't blame anybody. This is the interest rate environment. It's the unemployment at the same time is low. Employment is high. We have unbelievable records all over the place, and it's there's no clarity anywhere. Well, you know, it's interesting. We had we have a housing advocate, a new position in Ottawa, and the housing advocate put out their first report and literally was recommending rent controls. And I'm saying, yeah. is there a subject uh, that we don't, we have less, or you know, we have so much research is what I'm trying to spit out here. Yeah. We've got a ton of research on the failure, on the failure of rent controls, because of course it discourages building. Well, we need supply, but you're discouraging building. And I, and I thought, this is this person is getting paid 176,000 a year, the first report, and all yeah. they trotted out was all these familiar hobby horses, but the point being they have failed where they have been tried and rent control for one has been tried a heck of a lot of places. Yeah, all over Europe, in the States, in Canada, we have examples of, of lots of examples where it's not building, but that's what I mean by finger pointing. In the end, I know who's going to be blamed and, and look at an owner, any owner that has a four suite building, his hydro went up, his water rates went up, his management went up, his taxes went up all over the place, and his mortgage is coming due, and that payment went up. Look, on a $650,000 mortgage where you paid $2,300 last year at this time, or maybe in, in February last year, that's now $4,300. That just say on a small building. Let's say you have a 10 suite and your mortgage now is several million. All of a sudden, the increases are in the tens of thousands of dollars, and to no fault of your own. You didn't do it. You didn't increase the rates. And how fast it comes, the speed of which we have these increases boggles the mind. Well, the other thing that comes down to what I don't respect is the lack of common sense. And I'm talking about people who say, "Let's, uh, you can't pass those costs on. So it doesn't matter if whoever owns the building made the investment doesn't yep. make any money. And I'm going, you would not put your money in a bank if they said, I guarantee you to pay you zero. And maybe you might lose money. None of them yeah. will do it, and yet they want someone else to do it. As I say, th this is one of those subjects, Ozzy, that is going to be huge. It's going to be continued because they don't have a solution at this point. But just before I let you go, I want to go very quickly somewhere else, and that apparently there's new rules on multiple offers, and I haven't looked closely at them. Yeah, and that's it's, it's another thing that the government is trying to do to tweak, and they have a disclosure of multiple offer presented presentation form mm -hmm. and that will list all the offers that a seller receives and the brokerage of record submits them. What that's trying to do is have the, the representative of the owner, he can't lie, he can't say I had eight offers, right? He mm -hmm. actually has to write down those offers, which brokerage it did. But the twist is that the realtor and the homeowner will sign the form after he has accepted the offer. So some realtors say, look, learning about how many bits there were after the fact is less helpful than being aware of that beforehand. But I'm just thinking, though, it could work because we have the legislation of a cooling off period that we started in January. So if I know what, if I had a successful bid myself, and now I can see what all the others offers, I still have a chance to walk away. 
Yeah, as I say, we'll do more on that. But uh, housing and rentals and all that's going to be a huge subject going forward here. I just worried people have to become informed. As I say, when I saw that uh, report by Marie-José Hull, I think how we pronounce her name, but, you know, the new housing injustice minister, you know, I just think, oh, my God, some really bad stuff is about to come down the line when you are that unaware of the data that's out there and research that's already out there. Ozzy, they don't have to do that. They can just go to ozbuzz.ca, ozbuzz.ca. Ozzy, thanks and have a terrific week. Thanks, Mike, and you too. And and I am working right now on Ozbuzz and uh, I'm, I'm a little late because I was waiting for the interest rates and there's so much confusion out there. You know, Oscar Wilde says, I'm so clever that sometimes I don't understand a single word of what I'm saying. Uh, that's how I feel right now. Well, Ozzy, clearly that points to a career in politics if you don't know what you're saying. <laughs> Entirely. I'm going to run next week. Yeah, there you go. Ozzy Jurek, ozbuzz.ca. Let's go live to the trading desk. I want to bring in Victor Adair, who you can find at victoradair.ca. Uh, Vic, uh, just a, this is a broad thing. I mean, we had the interest rates this week in Canada. Talk about what's going on. The inflation numbers are coming. Uh, we're in the States, but we're coming, uh, you know, in Canada this coming week. All of these kind of things. I still want to come back to, though, what do you think the market's focusing on? Uh, well, it, this week it was absolutely clear that the most important thing that is driving interest, uh, that, that is driving, I should say, sentiment in the markets is the idea that inflation is falling faster than we previously expected. And what that means in terms of what the Fed and other central banks around the world are going to do, which everybody is hoping, people that are jumping in and buying stocks here, uh, they will start to either stop raising rates or, you know, <laughs> Katie bar the door, they'll start cutting rates. Yeah, what's interesting is that uh, I've been critical of, of the central bank. I mean, they missed a transitory. I was talking to Mike Levy earlier about that, all of this stuff. But they've been very clear about their communications. We are raising rates. They're going to be up longer and higher than most people anticipate. And I, I just still find that amazing that people said when they said they were lowering rates, they believed them in an instant. Never question that. But when they have been very consistent you can't be critical of what their communications have been in terms of rates because both sides of the border, they've been very consistent that rates were going higher. And yet, as you say here, the market kind of doesn't believe them or hasn't lots of action that suggests they haven't believed them for about eight months. Yeah, to, to bet against the Fed, you know, we used to call it fighting the Fed. And in this sense, it would mean to bet that the Fed is going to start cutting rates faster than they said they would has been a losing bet all year. And, uh, you know, I but, you know, the market wants to hear that the Fed is going to cut rates. So, you know, there's an old song by, you know, a man hears what he wants to hear. Paul Simon, I think. Uh, but, you know, I think that's been it in terms of sentiment. Now, the stock market had been rising since the lows back in March that when we had the Silicon Valley Bank made some interim lows. The, uh, the S&P is up about 15% from those March lows. Uh, NASDAQ's up about 35% from those lows at, at around 15-month highs. So we had been on a rising trajectory, and then the CPI number just goosed things to, to the highs that we've just yet to hear this week. 
as you say, all about inter- interpretation of those kind of numbers into the interest rate scenario. You've been saying for an age, uh, if the Fed actually does make some sort of announcement that that's done, we're done raising and we will lower, you have, you've called it the big green light is going to go on for at least uh, some move instantly in the market. Yeah, now that's the stock market. I, I tell you what, the currency markets were even more shocking, okay? Uh, the U.S. dollar hit a 20-year high. I should say the U.S. dollar index hit a 20-year high in September of last year. You know, the British pound was at a 37-year low when they had that kerfuffle. The Japanese yen was at a 32-year low and so on. Since then, we, the U.S. dollar backed off in November, December. The, this year, the U.S. dollar's kind of been broadly sideways, but it got whacked on the, on the CPI number. I mean, the euro has shot up. The British pound even has shot up. You know, all the other currencies in the world, it seems, uh, are higher this week against the U.S. dollar because, you know, and it's going to be a lot of this is going to be positioning, Mike. And, we, you know, it's a little tricky, but basically taking it at face value, the thought that maybe the Fed is going to be about done has it, it, uh, let's say, uh, excited people to buy these foreign currencies against the U.S. dollar. Yeah, certainly the consensus now is that one more uh, rate increase and then the Fed will step aside. I mean, that that seems to be a, a huge percentage of market anticipation in that you listen to different financial programs, read whatever. That seems like the given now, you know, that, yes, they are going to raise one more time, but then that'll be it. So we'll have to see how sticky it is. There is debate still about actually those inflation numbers themselves because of that thing called the base effect. Like, what are we comparing ourselves to? So if you're looking at energy, I mean, you couldn't have had a better comparison to last June, you know, when prices were, you know, over $5 a gallon in California. And that's when they started the let's get all that strategic oil reserve back, you know, into the marketplace, all of that stuff. Well, those comparisons don't get as attractive as we move into the fall. So we'll have to see the impact on inflation in that way. There's, I put charts up about that, what we, you refer to, the, the base mm-hmm. effect. But here's the thing. I just said, you know, the market uh, the sentiment, the most important thing, okay, mm-hmm. is this. But, you know, it's not, it's not like nothing else matters. <laughs> yeah. they're, they're, but, but that's the way the market is taking it. And let's go to Canada. I mean, we had the Bank of Canada uh, raise rates, as expected by virtually everybody, 25 basis points on Wednesday morning. They were totally overshadowed by the CPI number. Uh, the, as I say, the U.S. dollar fell like a stone against everything else, and even the Canadian dollar was rallying. Uh, you know, I was looking at it, and I'm thinking, you know, uh, uh, I'm trying to anticipate what other traders are going to do. Okay, that's how I trade. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, higher interest rates here probably aren't going to be seen as a good thing for Canada by the rest of the world. They're looking at a highly levered company, well, a, company a country, you know, but people with uh, debt burdens getting bigger because of higher interest rates. Anyway, to make the cut to the chase, by Friday, the Canadian dollar, you know, had rallied up like all of the currencies, but not nearly as much. By Friday, the Canada was back below where it was when the CPI number came out, while the, the euro and the British pound and the Japanese yen and everything else was well above where it had been on uh, the, the CPI report. So I think the, the currency markets here take a little bit of a, uh, of a bet uh, against Canada and the effects of this interest rate increase even though the market is is looking at, or I should say, giving at about a 50% odds that the Bank of Canada would raise rates 25 basis points uh, between now and the end of the year. 
Just just quickly before you go, uh, a quick word on gold. Yeah, gold uh, is, let's say, rallied 20 bucks on the uh, CPI number. Uh, so, I mean, the dollar was weaker and interest rates were down. You know, that's usually a green light special for gold. But uh, gold has had a pretty modest little bounce here, given how weak the U.S. dollar was against the currencies. Um, actually, I was looking at gold wondering, you know, if it if it can't get going on this, maybe I should look at shorting it. But uh, I haven't. The only thing I've done so far is be short Canada. Well, as usual, I mean, there's so many variables in operation. Next week, we get the CPI number, the inflation number for Canada, too. I mean, there's always these events in, uh, in this marketplace. It creates, uh, as uh, Peter Grandridge was saying earlier and Neil McIver was saying earlier, it kind of creates a level of uncertainty that people should be paying attention to. And, of course, that's why you have your risk measurements or your risk uh, uh, assessment and your practices about how to manage risk. Uh, it's this kind of an environment. But... Great for traders in that things seem to be moving a lot. Well, when you say great for traders, I, I got to, as a trader, I got to say, you know, I'm not so sure. I mean, we have these events and, you know, two weeks from now, you know, the Fed's going to have a meeting. So it's like every time you turn around, you kind of got to be conscious of, oh, and tomorrow morning or whatever, we're going to have this other event which could blow everything out of the water. So uh, it's actually kind of a difficult trading environment for me in terms of trying to uh, just be sensitive mm -hmm. to the risk th that these events present. Good. We're all in the same boat then. Vic, you go out and have a great week. People can find you at victoradare.ca. Look at those charts that Victor just alluded to there. Uh, victoradare.ca. Vic, great week for you. Thanks, Mike. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. You know, I think one of the hallmark features of the climate change debate has been the propensity of our leaders or climate activists to simply not walk the walk. I guess that's a nicer way of saying they're hypocrites when it comes to what they say about climate action and what they actually do. I mean, the list really is astounding. I mean, I think of things like the fleet of private jets to the latest COP climate fest so they could tell the rest of us not to fly. To business heavyweights like Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, who are on mega private yachts before they take a helicopter or jet to, in this case, it was COP26. To mega carbon footprint of 50,000 delegates at COP24 in Paris. Despite the fact, by the way, there was no reason for them to go. All the agreements were negotiated already behind the scenes. One of my personal favorites, though, has to be President Obama who arrived in London on his way to the Parrot Climate Summit with an entourage of 500 people, including 200 Secret Service agents, a team of six doctors, a personal chef, along with kitchen staff. Oh yeah, 35 vehicles, 12 teleprompters, 12 speechwriters, and of course, the presidential helicopter, and more. Or during the 2019 election, when one private jet wouldn't do for Prime Minister Trudeau, no, he had to have two private jets for the 219 federal election. You know what, though? I still find it astounding. So rarely acknowledged is the damage the blatant hypocrisy does in efforts to garner support for climate action. Which brings me to this week's goofy, and it is a beauty. Spain's Minister for the Ecological Transition of Spain, Teresa Ribera, while she was traveling to the EU climate summit, of course by private jet, Oh, oh, that's not the best part. 
The minister was chauffeured from the airport to the Senate, but a hundred meters before arriving, she got out of the car and got on a bicycle and rode the last hundred meters to the summit, of course, with all the cameras clicking. I mean, give me, I think that's climate change in a nutshell. So much more show than meaningful action. No walking the walk. I got to give you two other tidbits, though. They're along the same lines. I mean, this week they were reviewing climate czar, uh, U.S. climate czar, John Kerry, who owns six homes, 12 cars, two yachts, and a private jet. But that hasn't stopped him from lecturing the rest of us. And finally, this is another beauty. You're probably familiar with the protesters from Just Stop Oil. I mean, because they were recently brought their protest to center court at Wimbledon. They stopped play at the World Snooker Championships in Sheffield in April and so much more. Well, this week, the Mail on Sunday revealed that one of the senior spokespersons, Dr. Graham Buss, who worked 33 years as principal scientist for Shell Oil, He's estimated to have a 1 million plus pound pension being paid out by the company. Of course, where do the revenue come to pay for that pension? Well, principally from oil and gas operations. As I regularly say, you just can't make this stuff up. That's all the time I have this week. Uh, Just a reminder, you know, I think you should take advantage of the free email that we send out uh, every week. You just have to go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, click on the free email blast. We always include quotes and stats. I always think it's three stats and you're out Uh, because uh, there's just, I just think so much stuff to talk about these days, but sign up, just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, go to the free email blast. As I say, best price, it's free. Also go to Money Talks tweets and Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook. I, I just keep saying this. There is so much stuff I come across every week that is not making our major news. And I think it's serious stuff that you should be apprised of. You can decide what you do with it, but we should at least know the facts and the research that's out there on so many stories. Sometimes it's comments, uh, quick comments from people who are not featured in the mainstream media, but maybe should be. All of that. If you want a full picture, I think we're trying to help Mike's Money Talks. Uh, Mike's Money Talks.ca, but of course, Money Talks tweets, Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook. In the meantime, I hope you have an absolutely fabulous week.